For those of you who are visiting here with us, we are currently in the afternoon services going through the Ten Commandments, and we're looking at them as we find them in the Heidelberg Catechism. So in connection with that, uh, we have reached the, the Sixth Commandment with regards to murder. And you probably noticed that through the song that we just sang, came to the fore. But in connection with that, I'd like to read from Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, the verses 26 to 31 to begin with. We'll be running through a number of passages in Genesis. So I'd like to draw out a few things as we go along. Genesis 1, verse 26 to 31. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. And God said, See, I have given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of all the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. Also to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. And then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So in this particular passage, I want you to note the fact that man was created in the image of God, in the image of our triune God. And we'll keep that in our minds as we move forward to our next passage. Chapter 2, verses 8 to 25. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the, tree, out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Delium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon, It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittakal. It is the one which goes towards the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
And the Lord God said, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And wherever, whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the fields. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. So in this particular passage, I want you to see the relationship that God creates, the task for man and the relationship that he creates for man to enjoy. And finally, we come to Genesis 9. Genesis chapter 9. The verses 1 to 6. And here I want you to keep in mind what we've reflected on in the first uh, passage where man was created in the image of our triune God. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given you all things, even as the green herbs. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Surely, for your lifeblood, I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast, I will require it. And from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. So far, the word of God. We'll now be reading together from the Heidelberg Catechism, where it deals with the Sixth Commandment, and you can find that on page 555 of your book of praise. What does God require? In the sixth commandment, I am not to dishonor, hate, injure, or kill my neighbor by thoughts, words, or gestures, and much less by deeds, whether personally or through another. Rather, I am to put away all desire of revenge. Moreover, I am not to harm or recklessly endanger myself. Therefore, also, the government bears the sword to prevent murder. But does this commandment speak only of killing? By forbidding murder, God teaches us that he hates the root of murder, such as envy, hatred, anger, and desire of revenge, and that he regards all these 
as murder. Is it enough then that we do not kill our neighbor in any such way? No. When God condemns envy, hatred, and anger, he commands us to, show love, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to show patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness towards him, to protect him from harm as much as we can, and to do good even to our enemies. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, do you feel loved where you are today? There are many in society that would answer no to this kind of a question. Perhaps they feel they receive a little bit of love where they're at. They receive enough love to keep them going from day to day, but they crave more. They crave for more meaningful relationships that can help them to grow, to flourish, that can encourage life within them. They want someone whom they can talk to. They want someone who will care about them. They want someone who will hug them, who will laugh with them, who will cry with them. They want someone in their life who will rejoice when they rejoice and who will mourn when they mourn. Psychology Today is an organization that puts out a magazine and they recognize this great need in society. Back in August of 2013, they wrote an article with the following four conclusions. First, three out of every four adults agree with the statement Americans suffer from skin hunger. Skin hunger, that sounds a little bit strange, but that's their term for someone who wishes that they had more affection than they actually receive. Three out of four adults in 2013 wished that they could have more affection than they received. And their conclusion was that this is only growing. These numbers are only growing. The next point, more Americans live alone than ever before. The same can be true in Canada. Next point, one in four Americans reports not having one single person to talk about important issues. And finally, loneliness among American adults has increased 16% in the last decade. Just reflect on this for a moment, brothers and sisters. For most of us, that's hard to imagine, isn't it? We see the family of the Winkles here today. We are celebrating the baptism of Riker Hertz along with Rob and Cheryl. And just last week, people would have been visiting and congratulating Andrew and Ashley Grunewald on the birth of their baby boy, Blake William. When we're upset, we know that the option is there to at least call a friend in the congregation. We might not call them, but we know the option is there. When we're in need, we may not call on the deacons, but we know they're there. When we need spiritual guidance, we might not call on the elders, but we know they are there. Imagine having no body of Christ with whom you can meet every week. Imagine no contact. Imagine the desperate loneliness that can come with that. This article pointed out that just like hunger points to the fact that you need food and thirst points to the fact that you need water, so does a hunger for relationship, for affection, and for love point to a need in your life. 
The consequences of this lack of love is disastrous. There have been numerous studies connected with this. They lead to higher levels of depression, stress, and health problems, and those who suffer from this are impaired in their ability to express and interpret emotion, and they're much less likely to form secure attachments with others in their lives. In fact, psychology today concludes affectionate contact is so necessary for a healthy life that we suffer when we don't get enough. But this is no surprise to us, is it? Because we can see that this is the way that our God has created us, right from the beginning. We are image bearers of a God who creates and who interacts through relationships. And that is a fact we can most evidently and clearly see through the person and work of God himself. Let me explain. God is triune. He is three in person, and yet one in substance. The relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one of perfect unity and beautiful harmony. From before the beginning of time, God worked in a way that demonstrated this relationship and this harmony, this perfect love. This was a love that existed before time. God didn't need man in order to form relationships with them. God himself is a God of relationships. Because of this, when we read in Genesis, in Genesis 1 that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. When we read that God created humanity in his image, it was only natural that he would build in this love in the very core, the very essence of our being. And he created this in two parts. The first being a yearning for a relationship with the divine. For centuries, people have been searching after this. There is, as C.S. Lewis wrote, a God-shaped hole in everyone. We were created to have a relationship, and there is only one who can fill that deepest need. God answers that with love. Right from the beginning, we can see how God works out this relationship. When man rejected God, God promised that death would not be the end, but that his love for his chosen would conquer that. Genesis 3 verse 15, I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The sentence for sin and rebellion against God was death. But there was coming a Messiah who would break that sentence of death, a Messiah who was the bearer of God's love. The second aspect of in which God created humanity in his image. The second is where God has allowed the fulfillment of that relationship with him to spill over into our everyday lives. Having created men as relational creatures, he's also given us ways in which we can share that experience. So God created a man to be a creature that enjoys life, that finds life a beautiful thing. He placed him in the garden, not because he needed food, but in order to grow the garden and expand it. 
But man noticed that there was a hunger in his life, a need in his life. Not because he wasn't created perfect, but because God had said he would create a helper suitable for man. So God first brought one creature in front of a man, and then another, and then another, but no helper was suitable. And once this awareness was placed in the heart of man, God laid him down to sleep, and God created woman. God created someone with whom he could share this relationship of love, which, with which he could share the work, with which he could share the experiences. Take, for example, the beauty of seeing the water thunder over Inglis Falls. It's even more beautiful if you look at it in connection with the relationship that we have with God. If you're looking at it and you say, wow, God made this. Look at this. Isn't it beautiful? But it's more beautiful yet if we can share that with someone that's dear to us and together give the glory to God. As God said in Genesis 2, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper comparable or suitable to him. Giving us people with whom we can share life and serve God together is the first and one of the greatest gifts that God has given to man. Because of this, because of this, when we murder, if someone murders, that's one of the greatest possible rejections of this gift that God has given us. With this act, you end all hope for fellowship with that person. With this act, you take away that person's chance to continue to live in relationship with God and to continue to glorify God through his or her relationship with others on this earth, including yourself. Certainly, depending on the person, they may have a future hope. They may be glorifying God in heaven, but that doesn't lessen your guilt. You're taking that person's life into your own hands when you have no business to. And for that, God will judge. But is it only murder that concerns God? When he says, you shall not murder, is that it? Do we stop there? Or is God's command not to murder an extension of something that's much bigger? Let's turn to two passages for a moment. Matthew 5 and then Leviticus 18. Matthew 5, verse 43. We'll start there. Page 1116 of your Pew Bible. You've heard it said that it was, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
There were those who took the command in the Old Testament that you can find in Leviticus 18, the command to love your neighbor, and they turned it into a proverb. Sure, you'll love your neighbor, they said. Sure, you'll love your neighbor. Okay, but you'll also hate your enemy. They're not your neighbor. They don't deserve your love. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. This was something that they said. But Christ says, wait a moment, you're missing the point of the sixth commandment. And for that, he goes to the source of the command, to love your neighbor. And for that, let's go to Leviticus. Leviticus, sorry, not 18, Leviticus 19. Leviticus 19, verse 9. There in Leviticus, God commands his people, first of all, to provide for the people of God, for their fellow uh, members. You can see the heading, if you have headings in your Bible, you can perhaps see the heading moral and ceremonial laws, but that doesn't really do it justice. I want you to look at verses 9 and following for the moment and see the common theme that runs through them. There's so much more than just a random bunch of moral and ceremonial laws. There's a pattern here. There's a theme that runs through them. And that pattern is provision for and preservation of your neighbor out of love. But Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor. So Leviticus 19, verse 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not glean your vineyard, nor shall you gather every grape of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. So what he was saying here was provide for the physical needs of your neighbor. They would be able to, the poor would be able to walk by the fields. They'd be able to pick up the gleanings and go home. We don't have that so much today, but it's this pattern of provide for the physical needs of your neighbor. Next, you shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. With this one, it's a command out of love for your neighbor to build up your neighbor and deal with your neighbor in good faith. You shall not cheat your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. You shall not curse the deaf nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. Out of love, out of a desire for the preservation of your neighbor's life, you're called not to abuse those who depend on you for what they need. You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor honor the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Look out for your neighbor. Look out for their reputation and defend and promote it. Promote life. And finally, you shall not hate your neighbor, your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge 
against the children of your people. You shall love your neighbor, but you shall hate your enemy, they said. God here is saying, no, you shall love your neighbor, and even if your brother turns into your enemy, you shall love them. Even if your neighbor gives you every reason to hate, you shall not do so. In contrast with that, God says here, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All of these commands, this pattern that Christ pulled out here, that he saw here, these are life-affirming. These are relationship-building. All of these are done as a reflection of a God who is a God of relationship. A God who desires men and women and children to thrive in them and who desires them to turn together to do this, together to his glory and to his love. Love is the fulfillment of the law, and in this way it is the fulfillment of the sixth commandment. By these commands of the Lord, we can see that God is looking so far beyond simple murder. Preservation of life, encouragement of life is at the heart of these commands. But more than that, showing love, patience, peace, gentleness, mercy, and friendliness, even if they may consider themselves our enemy, is ultimately what lies behind it as the Catechism so wisely puts it. And all this is done for the sake of their souls, for the sake of the kingdom, and for the sake of God's glory. Rejection and condemnation of someone else is a rejection of that heart of the command. Do you speak angrily to your classmates? Do you tear down your children? Do you speak to your husband at all? Do you build up your wife at all? Are we always life-affirming? Do we always encourage relationships? Do we always direct the eyes of all those around us to our heavenly Lord and Savior? Because that's what the sixth commandment is ultimately about. That's where it lies. Mankind, with the fall into sin, plunged us into a world of death. He plunged us into a world of sorrow and misery, into a world of broken relationships. A wicked parody of the life-affirming, relation-sustaining, Trinitarian love of God. And if you don't see the brokenness of these relationships, try volunteering downtown at a youth shelter sometime. Volunteer with some of these youth, you can see the sadness, the brokenness there. I had it a while back that I was volunteering at a Youth for Christ Center back when I was a teenager. And I was speaking with one of the kids there. He was playing his guitar, and it was beautiful. He was very talented for a kid who was his age. And I... I asked him, how did you get to be so good? That's pretty impressive, chatting with him. And he said, I do it. I do it because when my mother's drunk, then she pays attention to me. And if I play guitar for her, she'll dance. Mankind has plunged us into a world of death into a world of sorrow and misery. 
when we fulfill the sixth commandment, we don't do it because we love men, because we like our neighbor. We don't even do it because we seek to save their life from death. We do it because we want to save them from the ultimate death. We want to save them from an eternity in hell. When you deal with your husband, when you deal with your wife, when you talk with your children, when you interact with your coworkers, is this on your mind? Through your life and through your interactions with them, are their eyes turned to the one who can save them from death? Maybe sometimes but often not. We find ourselves being irrationally angry at the person who's going 80 ahead of us down Gray Road 18 because we're going 100. We find ourselves snapping at our children. We're irritated with our husbands, with our wives, because they are not living up to our expectations, and so we let them feel it. We damage and break down our relationships. Instead of being life-affirming, we tear down life. We might not be murderers in the flesh, but we're murderers at heart. We have been given the grace to fight a culture of death, but still we willingly choose to embrace it. And that's the truth of it. Other people don't push our buttons. Other people don't make us angry. Other people don't drive us up the wall. Other people do things, and then we, you and me, choose to respond with anger instead of with grace. And what we choose flows out of a heart that has embraced death. As Christ himself says, those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and they defile a man, for out of the mouth out of the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Matthew 15, 18 to 20. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? That in our unrighteous anger, we choose to reject the grace we've been granted and willingly choose to give ourselves over to something that promotes death, to something that promotes to something which defiles us. Where do we look in light of that? Especially in the case of those of us who are particularly inclined towards anger, who struggle with anger. What do we do? Remember what Jesus did. Remember what he accomplished. We're going to be sitting down at the Lord's Supper today. Marvel as you eat of this bread and drink of the wine at what he has done for you and for me. Because Jesus had every reason to be angry with his people. They rejected him. They condemned him. And they subjected him to the most horrific death, death on the cross. But he had love in mind. 
He had in mind the covenant promises of God. He remembered that God had chosen his people to have a relationship with them. And this relationship was one which had chosen to reject death for mankind and to embrace life. As we read in John 3 verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but will have eternal life. And again in John 17 verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me. The world has not known Jesus Christ. The world has not known God, but Jesus Christ has known God. And those who were his own have known that God sent him. And I have declared to them your name and will declare that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I may be in them. Jesus Christ, by his suffering and by his death, has given us a love that has conquered death. Not only has physical death been conquered and turned into a gateway that ushers us into glory, yes, that is something we celebrate when we take part in the Lord's Supper. But also spiritual death has been overcome. Death we deserved, but life we received. That love has not only obtained those things for us, but that love is also worked in our hearts. When we come to Christ in repentance and faith as a response to our unrighteous anger, when we come to him in repentance and faith as a response to the times we've chosen death over life, we find forgiveness. But more than that, we receive his spirit who works that in our hearts. We pray to God that he would grant us the fruit of that spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. All of these things which turn murder on its head. And if we come in prayer and constant supplication, he will answer. He will grant us these things. He gives us the power by His Spirit. He has worked in us. And He gives us the power by His Spirit to choose the path of patience and peace because of and through the redemption that Christ bought for us. He gives us the power to embrace a culture of life, a culture in which the relationships in this church the relationships in Owen Sound Canadian Reformed Church can thrive and can grow and can bloom into something beautiful. He gives us His Spirit by which we build each other up in love within the bounds of the church. He provides for us and He does this through a love that has conquered death. Let us remember that today as we go to the Lord's Supper table. Let us repent of our sin. Repent of our unrighteous anger. And embrace our need for this Savior. And let the bread and wine always and ever direct our hearts and eyes to the one who has given us a love that has conquered death. Amen.